So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, and our sermon this morning is found in verses 16 through 23. Hear the word of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Let's pray. Father, now we've come into this place from different backgrounds and different situations and circumstances, likely from a long work week, different stresses and activities, both good and bad, both joyful and stressful. Our lives are a constant balance navigating um, the things that we rejoice over, that are life-giving, and the things that weigh us down with cares and oppress us and cause us to be heavy laden with burdens. We pray now that through this passage of Scripture, you would help us to understand that tension. And Lord, the future glory that we look forward to when you will ultimately redeem our bodies in the resurrection. Father, we thank you now. Transform us and convict our hearts and minds that we may leave this place differently than we came in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we spent the last couple of sermons talking about the tension between all the great things about technology. So this is technically the third sermon in our Living in the Digital Age sermon series. And the first two sermons, we talked about the tension of technology, how much we love it, how convenient it makes our lives, but how it challenges us in certain areas that God wants us to reflect his glory and be like him. We talked about how it affects us in our first sermon, and then we talked about how technology presents certain challenges in how we relate to other people, how we communicate, how we, whether our ability to have compassion when we're flooded, even though it was flooded with so much information about suffering in the world kind of desensitizes us, and then how we understand real connection. Um, And all of that is to say that there's this tension between the good and the bad. Um, This tension between the things that we celebrate in this world, and the world has many good things. Technology is just an example. It's kind of a kaleidoscope for us to, to, to see through all of the good things it brings, but there's also these evil things, right? There are things we hide our children's eyes from 
There are things, horrible things, and websites. You know, for every good website, there's a, a hundred bad ones. And so we feel this tension as we live in the world. And in many ways, this tension is just a microcosm of the tension between the future glory that we're to experience of the new creation and the world that now exists with its attendant suffering. The tension between the glory that the world was originally created for, which often it still exhibits, and what sin has actually introduced. Future glory and present suffering existing side by side together in our world every day, and we feel that tension, and we bear up under the weight of that burden of things that we celebrate and things that we lament over. And so what we see around us is not entirely a story of brokenness. There are good things, a lot of good things in the world. I'm not one of these people. I've gotten away from the language of saying, you know, the world is a cold, dark place. Because in some sense that's true, and in in, in another sense, the world is fantastic. The world is wonderful. There are beautiful things in the world, many beautiful things in the world to celebrate. And so these things are existing, good and bad existing together. Now, a good way to illustrate this point um, is you can think of the creation as a person who's born as a small child and develops a deformity, like a child who develops a serious disease that causes deformity and crippling. Now, they don't stop growing and developing, but they don't quite function the way that they're meant to. Ideally, the cure would take away the deformity and let that person keep on living and developing as they were meant to, free of the deformity. Well, that's kind of like the world we live in, the creation. And when I say creation, I'm not simply talking about the natural world. So when the Bible talks often about the created order, it's talking about all of human life. So culture and art and education and civilization and technology, all of those things which are a part of the created order, not just nature itself, but nature also. And so the world essentially has been progressing and going on for all these years, but with a deformity. And that's the point that this passage is getting at. Sin and corruption is the deformity, and the redemption in Christ is the cure. But the cure requires medical procedures and long-term care. And that long-term care will not fully and finally eradicate the deformity until the very end. In other words, it's going to take a lot of long-term care. Healing will one day be total and complete, but it's not here yet in its entirety. And that's what this passage is about. Now, there's two statements that I want us to look at, first in verses 17 and 18. And the two verses park on these two ideas. One, we're God's children, heirs with Christ who will be glorified, provided that we suffer with him, in verse 17. And the second is that the suffering we experience is disproportionately less than the glory that's coming, verse 18. Whatever suffering we experience is unworthy of being compared to the glory 
that will be revealed to us. What's the point? Well, we just talked about this tension between present suffering and future glory. Present suffering on one hand, future glory on the other. This tension between these two things. And Paul says here in this passage that the present suffering that we experience isn't worthy to be compared. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And that's an astounding statement. That's an astounding statement. That our present suffering isn't worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits our future. There's been a lot of human suffering, unimaginable human suffering. The toll of human suffering is unquantifiable, even right now, and Christians suffer incredibly. And yet this passage says that none of it, the sum total of it all, will not compare with the glory that God plans to reveal to us. All of the suffering, all of the unimaginable human suffering, the sum total of it all, even in your own life, is not worth comparing with the glory that's coming. Whatever you've gone through, whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, the sum of it all is not worth comparing with the glory that is coming. And the world itself, the creation itself, awaits deliverance from its suffering and futility. And there are five things, five statements about the creation in these, in these verses here, from 16 to 23. The creation waits with eager longing for the glory of the sons of God. It was unwillingly subjected to futility. Creation will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and sin. It is now groaning in the pains of childbirth until that day, and we, five, along with creation, have received the first fruits of that redemption from futility and bondage in the form of the Spirit, a kind of down payment on the redemption of our bodies. And that's the contrast painted. Present suffering on one hand, future glory on the other. The tension is illustrated in a couple ways. An inheritance whose balance is still outstanding, though the down payment, the spirit, has already been given, right? Buy a house, you put a down payment on it, the bank still holds the note until you pay it off. Same thing with a car. The spirit is the down payment of the inheritance that is outstanding, not yet received. That's one image. And the severe labor pains of a woman about to give birth. These two images, a down payment on a balance that's still outstanding, and labor pains of a woman who is about to give birth. And theologians call this tension the already and the not yet of our redemption. Actually, Oscar Coleman, German theologian, was the first one to coin that phrase. And the already and the not yet recognizes the fact that in some ways... The world continues to get better, while in some ways, it gets worse. It's not all of one, it's not all of the other. It requires us to think deeply about the condition of the world. Like that child 
continuing to grow and get older and learn and develop even though it has a deformity. And that deformity as that child grows can also be, the, the intense pain can grow more and more crippling. But that child continues its life and continues to grow as it becomes an adult. And it's a sign, the already and the not yet, the fact that the world gets better while at the same time it gets worse, and it gets worse while at the same time it gets better in different ways, and these things exist together. It's a sign that the new creation and the old creation exist side by side. That the old age of the old world of sin and death and destruction is on its way out, and the new age of the new creation introduced by Jesus Christ in his resurrection has already broken into the present. Not here in its entirety yet. Will one day be manifested in its entirety, but there's an overlap of both ages. Does that make sense? There's an overlap. The old age and the new age. An overlap of the ages. But while this is playing out, the creation, in verse 19 is said to be waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, the word used there for eagerly longing, you say, well, that's two words. Well, often two words in, two words in English are taken from one Greek word. And so the word for eager longing has the idea of a person craning their neck, craning their neck to see what's coming next. This eager longing looking out to see what's coming. The J.B. Phillips translation puts it this way, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. It's quite an image, right? All of creation, you know, on its tiptoe. When I read this, I thought about, you know, a race, a bike race or a marathon where people are on the sidelines like this, looking to see who's going to come across the finish line. And that's where the creation is, according to this verse. The creation is on its tippy-toes, craning its neck, looking to see who the sons of God are. C.E.B. Cranfield, in his masterful commentary on Romans, says, Believers are already the sons of God in this life, but their sonship is veiled, and their incognito is impenetrable except to faith. Even they themselves have to believe in their sonship against the clamorous evidence of much in their circumstances and condition, which seem to be altogether inconsistent with that reality. Which is to say that we know that we're the children of God, but it often just doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it sometimes. And the one thing that makes it feel like we're not the children of God, like God really doesn't love us, is the suffering we experience. The suffering in this world, the evil things in our lives, the things that weigh us down, and they make us feel like, am I really a child of God? Does God really call me as his own? Does he really love me? I mean, that's ultimately what the emotions in our hearts when we suffer tell us. And we know that's not true. We know that we are, but it's a hard thing to grapple with, especially when your circumstances say different. And so right now, we don't appear much like the sons of God, children of God. 1 John 3 and 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Some of you remember the novel by Alexander Dumas, uh, The Man in the Iron Mask. I think it was made into a movie a few years ago, and it's a part of the Three Musketeers series. But it's actually based on a historical event. There was a man in a French prison. In fact, he was shuttled from one prison to another back in the 17th century. And he was in prison for 34 years. And he wore a black veil over his face. In the novel, it says it was an iron mask. But in reality, it was a black veil. And the identity of this prisoner was a mystery. Some people thought it was an Italian diplomat who had conspired against the king of France. And this was during the reign of King Louis XIV. <clears throat> now, that's not St. Louis. St. Louis, I, look, I had to look it up for the sermon. St. Louis was Louis IX, apparently. But this is King Louis XIV. And no one ever knew who this person was. But in the end, most people thought, in fact, it was a rumor that proliferates to this day, that the man in the Iron Mask was actually King Louis's twin brother. Well, right now, we don't appear much like the sons of God, but one day our status and true identity will be revealed to the world. And the mystery of who God's own children truly are will be answered on that day. The masks will be revealed, and God will reveal who his children are. That's a glorious thought, and it's something we're waiting for. It's something we long for and look to with anticipation. But in the meantime, to push the illustration a little bit further, we wait. Sometimes it feels like we're in prison. Now, we're given this excursus in this passage of Scripture in verses 20 and 21. And if you read Paul, the apostle, he, he gets sidetracked a lot. So he'll be, he'll be making a statement. He'll be trying to prove a point, And then he'll get carried off on a rabbit trail to make a sub-point. And then he'll come back to what he's talking about. And he does that here in verses 20 and 21. And this is what he says. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The point is, what he's getting at is, that creation itself right now is not functioning the way it's meant to. That good and evil exist together. Because back when Adam fell in the garden, when sin was introduced into the world, God tied the fate to the created, of the created order to the, to the fate and, of man. When Adam fell into sin, the whole world was plunged also into sin, preventing it from functioning the way it was supposed to. Remember the image of the deformed person, the earth now deformed, a crippling disease. The fate of the created order tied to the fate of human beings in their sin. And he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God that is, who subjected it. In other words, God linked those two fates together, but in hope. He did it with hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's a packed statement. Sometimes Paul's hard to understand. But essentially what he's saying is, 
that God tied the fate of creation together with man in the hope that when man is redeemed, that when you and I are finally glorified in, on the day of judgment and the resurrection, when God glorifies us and redeems our bodies once and for all, and transforms us into the likeness and image of his Son, incorruptible and immortal, the world itself will be healed of its deformity and restored to the function it was originally created for. If I was still in the Pentecostal church I grew up in, I would say, someone say, amen. Amen. Douglas Moo says, Humanity's fall into sin marred the goodness of God's creation. And the creation has ever since been in a state of frustration. Remember we started talking about the tension that exists in our world. Good and evil existing together. This frustration that the world does many, the created order does many good things. We started talking about technology. Looking at the, the, the miracle of modern technology. Not just digital technology, but skyscrapers and buildings. You know, in Dubai and the Middle East right now, there, I, think, I think it might have the tallest building in the world. Someone can correct me, but I know that there's plans for them to build a building that's actually a mile high. You know, 5,286 feet. I don't know how that's possible, but it'll happen. It'll happen. There's all these amazing things happening in the world. And so, you know, on one hand, one of the reasons why it's hard for, I think, the gospel to fall gracefully on the ears of unbelievers is because often Christians have fallen into the error of saying that the world is nothing but evil. People look around, they go, a lot of good to me. I see a lot of awesome things going on. And so what we want to do is we want to nuance what we say about the world. That there are many awesome things going on in the world. A lot of things to celebrate and rejoice. Vaccinations and medicine and technologies and discoveries and, you know, the Rosetta Stone software. You can learn, you know, any language in the world. I mean, there's all these cool things, right? I mean, that's not evil. That's good. A lot of good things. And so we want to acknowledge that in many ways the world still functions the way it was meant to. Glorifying God in the process. But ultimately, it's subjected to futility and frustration because sin corrupts everything we do. Sin corrupts all the good things that we do because they're, they're, they come from motivations that are selfish and self-centered or motivated by greed and avarice and all of these different things. And so the created order, subjected as it is to, the, to frustration, not being able to fully fulfill the purpose of its existence... And that's why there's this tension that exists. Good and evil, side by side, future glory, present suffering, together in tension. The world cannot be what it was meant to be until it obtains the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Douglas Moo continues, he says, The idea that the creation itself will be set free strongly suggests that the ultimate destiny of creation isn't annihilation, but transformation. God is now transforming the earth, but will, at the day of redemption, finally transform it into what it not only was meant to be, but what it was meant to become. But until that time, there's a groaning, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And it's such a good illustration, isn't it? 
a mother in labor. Such a fitting illustration because for, for you moms that have had kids, you endured that labor pain because it was a hopeful pain, wasn't it? First trimester, maybe you were sick, nauseous. Maybe the second trimester was okay. Third trimester, you know, you're walking around like that. My wife had four kids. I, I watched her do it. I didn't, you know, I just watched her do it. And, you know, she, she did this when the stomach was out to here and the back was killing her. She couldn't sleep and, and all those different things. And then when, when, when she went into labor, there's this hopeful endurance. And labor's intense. It might be one of the most intense pains as the, as the female body contracts and all those different things. But there's a hopeful expectation that all of that pain is going to yield the beauty and the glory of a long-awaited, expected baby. And so they endure. And this is the image that Paul gives us of ourselves and the world right now, groaning in labor pains. Jesus says in John 16 and 20, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And we're groaning along with creation, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. We groan. These aren't verbal utterances. These are the emotional sighs as we bear up under the weight of our lives often not exactly what they're supposed to be. Intruders like pain and shame and suffering that come into our lives and introduce things we don't want to feel. And there's this groaning, longing for our adoption in the family of God, the redemption of our bodies. You know, there will be moments in your life where all you can do is groan where you can't rub two words together for a prayer, to pray to God and cry out to him, and all you'll be able to do is groan. The sitting in silence, the futility you can feel about prayer at times, whether God really hears, whether God really cares, we all go through that. But... The Holy Spirit has been given to us, and he prays for us. In fact, just a few verses later, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We groan, we sigh under the burden and pressures of life. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit is interceding. When you don't know what to say, the Spirit is speaking to the Father. When you don't know what requests or petitions to make to God or how to navigate through a situation, the Spirit is navigating for you 
gift God has given us to help us get through all of life's trials and tribulations and the confusion as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. We wait for that great day where Jesus returns, judges all things. We wait in hope. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, it says. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So be encouraged this morning because the Spirit has been given to us as a down payment of our redemption. It's this guarantee of our adoption into God's family. A promise of a future that is void of pain. promise of a future that is void of suffering. The promise of a future void of misery. When at last, we will experience the total redemption at the resurrection. Let's pray.